Uh, well, welcome. My name is Tim. I helped to organise the NLC conference. We're really excited uh, to have Kate Garbers with us um, from Unseen. The, the theme of this conference has been freedom, so we thought that we couldn't go, uh, we couldn't go out without the conference, without hearing about um, trafficking and all that sort of thing. So Kate's in a, a great position to tell us all about that. So um, hopefully you should have a great hour with Kate, and uh, hope you enjoy. Kate. Thank you very much. Hi, guys. Um, so based on the overview that I was given, we're all here today to learn a bit more about modern slavery, how it presents in our communities, how Unseen works, and then what you guys can do locally and within your church communities to tackle the issue. Um, so all an hour, not a problem. Great. Um, what um, I would like to do today, my hope is that I'm going to be able to inform you, that I'm going to be able to challenge you, and that you guys are going to be able to walk away from here wanting to incorporate small changes in your day-to-day -day life. Now, the issue of modern slavery and probably lots of the issues you've been chatting about during the time you've been here feel massive and overwhelming. And what I want to try and do is break it down so that there are tangible things that you guys can go away and do and change actually in your lives, okay? So what I would like to do is that you guys will be in a position to start making a difference for those who are currently not experiencing the fullness of freedom. Again, all in an hour, we shall see. So, what I'd like to do, and this is opening myself up for a little bit of a <coughs> nightmare potentially, is I just want to ask if anyone has a burning question right now that if they leave this seminar and I haven't answered, they will be really, really sad and it will really, really impact their opinion on me, Unseen, and the issue. There will be a time at the end as well, I promise. But has anyone got a burning kind of, actually, I really need to know this? Wow, brilliant, great. Let's hope this is as easy as, a, as, it, <laughs> as you guys are pretending it will be. Right, so um, what I have done is I have um, linked some of uh, modern slavery issues um, to um, the topic of freedom. So um, I love this quote because modern slavery, when I think about it, um, kind of on a global level, is absolutely terrifying to me. And I am someone who's worked in it for 10 years. So actually what I need to do is take it back down to basics, take it back down to what I can do, take it back down to the individuals that Unseen may or may not be working with. All right, so that's the kind of premise of this session, I think. And it always does seem impossible until it's done, okay? So caring about freedom means caring about justice, and it means caring about um, equality. And for me, justice and equality need to be reflected in everything that you guys do, your choices and your decisions, if you're going to care about issues like modern slavery. So I would suggest that by caring about equality and justice and things like slavery, it will cause you to live differently. These issues need to disrupt us in order for us to then disrupt them. So we have to understand all of the issues that are interlinked, um, it is not just kind of the issue of modern slavery, the issue of poverty, the issue of rape and violence, the issue of kind of lack of education. All of those global and systemic issues are often interlinked. And we need to wrestle with that. We need to understand it, and we need to work out where the part we're going to play sits within that. Um, my belief is that Christians are called to be countercultural, that we have to stand aside from society and show people we're God's people. That's not always easy. And it extends to the whole of our lives, not just when we're volunteering, not just in church on a Sunday, not just when we're having an amazing conversation with one of our mates. It's not a nine to five job, as I'm sure you're all aware. It is a change of attitude and a change of approach. And it is really, really hard work. So in relation to modern slavery, we have to recognize that the things we purchase, the services we buy, may be keeping people from freedom. 
Now, obviously, we are not sitting here willingly supporting slavery. Nobody wants to live in a world where the goods we purchase are made by slaves. But the truth is, currently, we do live in a world that needs to look incredibly different. And we need to work out together how we do things. There is no easy answer, unfortunately. There is no magic wand. I am not going to be able to stand here today and say, hey, if you want to ensure that all your clothes are slave-free, this is where you need to shop. If you want to be able to um, ensure all your technology is slave-free, here's where you need to shop. But my challenge is that actually we need to start being the, the famous kind of quote, the change that we want to see. We need to start asking the awkward questions. We need to start setting the bar that change needs to happen. Slavery is an illegal business. Um, it is the second largest illegal trade, second only to the drugs industry. The reason um, that it has overtaken the arms industry is that you can sell a human more than once. So arms, you kind of sell once and then it's done. People, you can sell more than once. Fundamentally, we need to change the world, and this is the kind of the, the global bit. Um, I personally don't want there to be the demand in our society for cheap sex, cheap clothes, cheap goods, cheap services, and my belief is that church has a role to play in challenging this. So, I went out to my staff team, and I said, right, what does freedom mean to you? I'm going to a conference, and I want to know what you think freedom means. Um, out of about 84 of them, three replied. So either they haven't got a clue what freedom means, or they weren't really interested in the fact that I was speaking at a conference and helping me. But anyway, um, so, excuse me, I'm going to read this out to make sure that I uh, reflect it um, appropriately. So, freedom. This is one of our staff team. Freedom to me is a choice in everything I do. From the big decisions about when or if to have a family, or who to spend my life with, down to if and when I run, eat, or sleep. My life is my own, and I can choose the way I do things. Another one said, freedom means to me that I have the power to change, or at least influence, 99% of the problems or situations that arise in my life. It's empowering and reassuring to have that. On a small level, I am most free when I'm with people I really connect with and outside with my dog. Another said, my feelings on it are based on a pretty standard positive freedom of understanding liberty. This is the really cerebral guy in our office who's doing a PhD. For me, freedom does not mean freedom from, but freedom to. It is about the ability to act. Relying on freedom from means someone may be free to pursue something, a dream or desire, but they lack the means or are restricted by social structures in which case this form of freedom counts for very little. In contrast, a fully realized freedom contains notions of action, support, empowerment, and systemic change. So the themes I noticed in the staff's responses are about choice, power, ability to act, and not lacking the means to do so. And I think that really, really struck me as I was preparing this. If we are restricted by our social structures, freedom counts for very little. And when I think of the population group that Unseen works with, men, women, and children, survivors of slavery, that actually rings really, really true for me. So the notion, concept, and desire for freedom is a shared worldwide goal. You've got the UN Declaration of Human Rights. It's in the um, American Constitution, the kind of independence. The Universal Declaration sets out 30 articles which all say we are pro-equality, equal rights, freedom, regardless for anybody. Sexuality, race, gender, culture, religion doesn't come into it. We're not quite there yet, but the concept of freedom and being able to act in independence and with your own agency is enshrined worldwide in policies and constitutions. It's a challenge for us to work out how we then actually get that on the ground. 
How do we transfer that from the piece of paper that is in every single country to actually what we see on the ground on a daily basis? So I then started to think about what freedom meant for me. Um, I guess you guys have had a lot of uh, discussions about freedom, but I, this is, I only arrived an hour ago, so it's uh, been fun to think it through. Mm. Sorry, I didn't just think this through an hour ago. That's not what I'm saying. There is a lot of, there's a lot, there's a lot of thought that's gone into this. Um, so when I thought about freedom, I started to consider the scenarios where I have not felt free and very quickly realized when comparing to uh, the survivor group that we work with, how ridiculous my kind of non-freedom sounded. And uh, I realized that it was actually usually um, my perception of when I couldn't do what I wanted to do. And um, actually that was usually because I felt a social pressure from a group of friends or a kind of social construct that I had thought expected me to act in a certain way. And then I realized how absolutely ridiculous that is because actually I always have the freedom to say no. I've never not experienced having choice. And peer pressure is very, very different to kind of not experiencing having choice um, and the ability to act in the way that I want to. And then I reflected that that therefore means I have to take responsibility for the times I haven't used my freedom responsibly. And that, again, was just something to, I suppose, throw out there. We are free and how do we use that? especially in light of the fact that the guys that Unseen works with are not free. So as I've said, part of our work is directly supporting survivors, and I will um, come on to how we do that shortly. So freedom in the context of modern slavery, uh, it's an example of taking someone's freedom away. Lots of the people we work with have been reduced to being a commodity, and they have been controlled. Um, they are usually controlled solely for the purpose of making money. Slavery worldwide is a $150 billion business. That is tax-free money that is not going through anybody's systems. Um, again, the Declaration of Human Rights states clearly that nobody should be held in servitude or slavery and that nobody will be degraded to cruel or inhumane treatment. Unfortunately, that is not the case and we are seeing people in the services that we run that have experienced all of those things. So, um, I'm going to split down modern slavery for you. So modern slavery in the UK is now an umbrella term. Um, this came out of the Modern Slavery Act in 2015, and it's an umbrella term that covers these two things. I'm going to start with human trafficking and explain what that is to everybody so we're all on the same page. Human trafficking has three elements. It has the act, the means, and the purpose. So what is done, why it's done, and how it's done. So the act might be that somebody might be offered a job. They might be recruited for a job. They might be transported from one country to another for a job. When they get to that country, they may then have been deceived or coerced or forced to do something they don't want to do for the aim of exploitation. So you've got an act, a means, and a purpose. Slavery, servitude, and forced or compulsory labor is a slightly different legal framework. In this one, you do not have to evidence the act. Now, the reason this is important is before the Modern Slavery Act came to fruition, we had this segregated pieces of legislation that said unless you were forcibly moved in or around the UK, actually, you were on this exploited spectrum, but you weren't a victim of trafficking. Therefore, you weren't able to get access to any support. So what the Modern Slavery Act has done is actually say, we recognize that the spectrum of exploitation is far wider than some of the things that we can identify, and actually, we don't now have to evidence that the act has taken place. So it's a really useful bit of legislation to make sure we're able to help kind of more people. Um, it's really different to smuggling. 
Smuggling is um, around, I have agreed to move from place A to place B, and I am going to pay for my journey. When I get to place B, my relationship with the person I paid ends. The confusion is that sometimes trafficking can then occur at that stage when someone says, actually, your journey was longer than we expected. We had to stay in France for three days longer, therefore there was more accommodation and more food, and now your actual final bill, what you paid originally isn't enough, and your final bill is this. Therefore, these are your options. You can now go and work here, here, and here, and I will take some of that salary for you. The other classic one that we hear quite a lot is, um, on my journey, I was offered alcohol and cigarettes. I said yes to them, and then I was charged when I arrived, and then I had to work in order to pay it back. So that kind of debt bondage system that we see. So smuggling and slavery are different, but they can be interlinked. So currently, it's predicted um, latest government figures, 10 to 13,000 potential victims of slavery in the UK. Um, 40 million worldwide, according to the Global Slavery Index. Last year, in the UK, 4,000 people were identified as potential victims. These are only people that have put their hands up and said, yes, please, I'd like help. Yes, please, I'm a victim. So if we're looking at 4,000 people saying, yes, please, help, actually extrapolate that out. There are going to be other people out there who aren't in the position to ask for help or haven't yet been identified. Of those 4,000, uh, roughly um, 1,300 uh, were children. Um, most of the victims last year were male, and most of them were forced into um, working in labor, poor labor conditions. Of the top countries that we had last year, Albania, Vietnam, UK, Nigeria, and Romania. So they were the top countries that people were trafficked from and to. So the UK was in there. So UK citizens being moved from city to city and then exploited um, in different cities. Has anyone got any questions at the moment? Yes, great. Good question. Um, I would caveat all, all the number answers with, we find what we look for, we find what the police are tasked to go and look for, and once we get good at finding something, we then go back and back and back. So when we start in the sector, um, so 10 years ago, the police were really, really good. They had vice squads, and they used to go into brothels. So actually, the numbers of women who were sexually exploited were really, really high, and then actually vice squads disbanded, and you didn't have brothel visits anymore. What we're really good at now is going to Vietnamese nail bars and car washes, so actually we see those numbers kind of spike. So everything I say is caveated with, we find what we're looking for. Um, to directly answer your question, the National Crime Agency produces a quarterly report that breaks down where people have been found by local authority and by police force. So it covers all 42 police forces and all local authorities. So one of the things you could do post today is go back, download that and go, right, I live here. How many numbers have we got? And if the number is zero, it's an interesting challenge for your local authorities and for your police forces, because I can probably guarantee it won't be zero. It's just that we're maybe not looking for it yet. Um, any other questions? So these are the types of slavery that we have identified currently in the UK. Um, the government recently has released 17 different typologies um, which link to all of these different types. So um, how people are trafficked, kind of where they're being recruited from, the type of exploitation we're seeing. But these are kind of the top ones that we then recognize. Um, I thought it might be useful Oh, yeah, great, we've got loads of time, to um, give you examples of stories of people that Unseen has worked with in each of these categories to try and bring it to life. Um, so, 
where to start. I will start with um, probably one of the first people that I ever met who was trafficked. Um, and um, so everything I'm going to tell you, I have permission from the people to tell you. So, um, yeah, I am not speaking out of turn. Um, he um, was working in a farmer's field, and we were part of a joint police operation in Cambridgeshire. And we went to Cambridgeshire, and the police brought everybody off the farmer's fields um, and asked us to sit with them and interview them and just be a friendly face and have a cup of tea and explain kind of what their rights and entitlements were. So um, this guy had really bad um, gangrene. He'd been working in a farmer's field in really, really poor conditions, and um, he hadn't been provided with any safety equipment or any proper clothing. He was living um, in a three-bedroom house with 33 of them in the property. And what had raised the attention was that neighbours had realised that the amount of rubbish being produced from this house could not possibly be from three people. So had actually called in um, different services and said, can you do something about this? They had then said, every morning a white van turns up and picks everybody up and then drops them back. And actually there's different people coming at different times and we're not really sure what's going on. So all of those indicators, I don't know if the neighbours knew it was slavery or trafficking, but they knew there was something not quite right. And again, I think that's probably my encouragement whenever I speak is, if you know that something's not right, quite right, find out the right people to call and make that call and let them make that decision for you. Don't just sit with it and definitely don't go in there. That's not allowed. <laughs> um, so this guy, um, it was, it's a really positive story actually. Like he was, what had happened, he had been brought over by a gangmaster from Lithuania and he had been told that he would be working on a farm. Okay, so far all correct. He hadn't been told that he would be expected to work crazy long hours. He hadn't signed up for that. He hadn't been told he'd be living and kind of hotbedding in a house of 33 people with inappropriate sanitation. And he hadn't been told that actually, even though the gangmaster very helpfully would he help him set up a bank account, that actually that card for his bank account would be kept by the gangmaster. So even though the UK farmer was correctly paying all his workers, actually it wasn't the workers that had control of their finances. The other guy did. Um, so I should start with, yeah, I'll start with the positive one. So he, it was brilliant. He was able to, um, through another agency, get um, accommodation. And there were three of them housed. And the police had worked out a really good plan. And actually, he was going to move on to another job. So it was absolutely fantastic. I think the reason that it really, his story sticks with me is, one, it was the first guy that I had ever interacted with that was a victim of trafficking. Um, and again, there was something in me at that stage 10 years ago that was like, this is an issue about women and sexual exploitation and inequality and da-da-da. And actually, it was really, really um, powerful when we left him in his new home that night. And it was one of the double-glazed doors. And he said, can you check that I know how to lock this properly? And here is a fully grown man who actually kind of in the world's view should be absolutely fine. He's got a job, he's sorted, da-da-da. And actually, he was really, really scared. And it just brought it home to me that actually this doesn't discriminate against kind of gender. It doesn't discriminate against age or kind of sexuality or culture or any of those things. Actually, there are people who will just commodify other people um, and the impact of that. Um, another one. Ah, oh, Chinese lady sitting on a brothel floor. Not my favorite habit. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. <clears throat> Um, only ever with police. We only ever go into places where we think there may be victims when we're working with police. We let them lead it, and we go in to be the friendly face of the charity. There we go. Um, I'm not allowed to do it anymore. All our teams go in. They're brilliant at it. Um, and um, this lady, we were chatting to her. The, an amusement thing. Um, the translator, absolutely brilliant. When you have to ask some of the questions of what women in this industry have to do, and you see this poor male translator going... 
I don't even know there's a word for that in Chinese. And we were like, mm-hmm, right, okay. We are not doing actions, guys. Come on now. We need to be able to. It was at, it's, yeah, you have to find comedy in some of these situations. You really do. And um, so she was sitting there, and she said, yes, I'd like to come away with you. Yes, I'm being exploited. Yes, I don't want to do this job. And in the police officer in my head, we're like, brilliant. Yep, this is going to be great. Um, she then said, are you able to pay off my debt? And we both went, mm-hmm, okay. She was in debt by 30,000 pounds. And if she didn't return this money, she said that the traffickers who brought her here knew where her son, who was disabled, lived, and her parents in China. And actually, that was not a risk that she was going to take. So if we could not pay off the traffickers, while she didn't want to be there, she would stay there in order to protect her son and her parents. Another lesson for me, just because we walk in and offer people the opportunity to be free in our nice middle-class construct does not mean that actually it's the right time for them or the freedom that we are offering is the right freedom for them. A real challenge, I think, when we are well-meaning and want to help. Um, forced labor, um, a recent issue um, around forced labor, car washes. So in the, my hometown of Bristol, um, it's always a dreaded call when you uh, get the police briefing and you realize that the car wash you're going to is really near your house and you're like, oh no, oh, well, I hope they don't live locally. Is that just that thing of kind of, again, realizing, even though I work in it, it is right on our doorstep and it really is kind of, yeah, it's, it's just, again, it still shocks me. So um, in we went to this car wash. We found 13 Slovaks, um, 12 uh, guys, one girl. They all were uh, playing pool, actually, at the back of the car wash. Freezing conditions. Um, there was police intelligence that there was something going on. We then visited where they were living because they were all like, no, thank you, we're fine, we're fine. They obviously weren't fine from the way they were looking, the clothes they were wearing, they were looking malnourished. They couldn't tell us how much they were paid. None of them would speak to us to begin with. And then magically, one by one, they all started to tell us exactly the same story. So literally parrot fashion, um, which again raised suspicions as to what was happening. We went to where they were staying. Uh, what transpired was it, again, something about three bedroom houses. It was a very nice three bedroom house um, for the trafficker, his wife and child. But actually they were living in the loft space. Um, and again, they just had mattresses. So they're literally we're kind of within a five-mile radius from my home. I'm standing in a loft space going, this is ridiculous. How is this happening under our noses, literally? Um, what was happening with these guys was that they were being driven by the person that was exploiting them every morning to a large supermarket. They were cleaning. They were then being driven to the car wash, washing cars all day, being driven back for the evening shift at the large supermarket. Um, and then on top of all that, he'd registered them very helpfully for housing benefit and job seekers allowance and dropped them off once a week at the job center so they could claim their money that he could then take. So he was doing very well out of his 13 Slovaks, thank you very much. And all of them were saying, no, thank you, we're fine. We're happy. It's better than it is in Slovakia. Again, that notion and concept of freedom, legally, very wrong. Human rights issue, an absolute mess. But each of them consenting adults saying, I'm fine, thank you. Just, yeah. Um, child trafficking. There was a recent case in Bath. Slightly shocking. Lovely, lovely rural Bath. Um, where um, two Vietnamese, um, I think three Vietnamese people have now been prosecuted for modern slavery and trafficking offences. Um, they were... Um, convicted of trafficking two children um, to work in a nail bar. These girls were both orphans, um, and um, they were basically taken advantage of, brought to the UK, and then made to work when technically they should still have been in school. Um, so that is, 
it's a really it's a really sad case, but a really exciting case in the fact that it is one of the first convictions that the local police force have been managed managed to get, um, and has kind of hopefully paved the way for some other um, good kind of convictions. Organ harvesting, you'll be pleased to know, we haven't had any cases of that in the UK. There was one suspected, and then it it wasn't. Um, is everyone okay with what organ harvesting is? Yeah, great. Okay. Anyone not? Anyone brave enough to say no? I don't know, and I'd like to know. Thank you. Great. Um, so, um, organ harvesting can happen in two ways. Um, one, you go in for a routine surgery and wake up with an organ missing, usually a kidney. So, um, you are then told that that's happened, um, but for the people that um, uh, another charity works with in Romania, they've said that then they kind of go home to their villages and there's not enough um, care for them, so they can't function with one kidney. So there's that kind of literally, we've just stolen it from you because we don't really think you're worth anything. Um, and then the second way is, yep, okay, we'll pay you for your kidney. We can see that you are in a position of poverty, that you need money, whatever it is. You're in an awful situation. How about you sell us one of your kidneys? Um, forgetting that the medical attention and care that's required after that procedure is not in place. And also then not actually paying somebody because once you've got the organ, you require, why should you have to pay for it? So those are the kind of two ways that it occurs at the moment. Uh, the criminal exploitation is along the lines of the benefit fraud that I was saying earlier with the Slovaks registering people incorrectly for their benefits. Um, so moving on to, um, I suppose, unseen and what we do. So our, uh, our vision is working towards a world without slavery, and it's really, really important that it is working towards. This is not something we can do in isolation, and it is not something that we've got sorted. So we have been um, treading this path now for 10 years. We have definitely made progress. We have seen progress in policing, in government, in policy, in charities in the sector, et cetera, et cetera, but we are not there yet. So this really is the kind of, it's really important that we are mindful that this is a journey. Um, so what do we do? We support people, uh, we equip stakeholders, and we try and influence the system. Um, we have three safe houses in the southwest. We have a 24-7 safe house for men. We have a 24-7 safe house for women. And also, um, we work with the local authority and policing to provide one for children as well. We then also run resettlement services in the community. So once someone has been through that system, Actually, they then need to be able to resettle in their community, and we were finding that actually coming out of a quite a protected safe house environment and then being dropped into a local community kind of in the southwest wasn't necessarily particularly easy for people. So um, again, we work with them um, for part of that kind of resettlement and reintegration process. We are really, really set on the fact that this is not a journey that we continue with people for years and years and years. Um, and it sounds incredibly harsh, but we are not there to be professional friends. What we need to do is get these people into community, into um, a place that is safe for them, into true and meaningful friendships, not the only person I see each week is my support worker. That is not a true meaningful friendship that kind of equates to them having choice and freedom. Um, and again, is that an area that the church, whatever it looks like in your communities, can be assisting with? Um, the other thing we do is um, we run a 24-7 helpline. So we run the UK's national helpline. Um, I will give you the number later because one of the things that you can do is give that number out to people. You can advertise that number and you can also use it yourself if you are concerned or worried about someone or a situation. That is a number that you can use and report that through. Um, 
So I don't know if people are interested in figures. We have worked with, what are we up to? I think we've got, we've had 120 women through the Women's Safe House. The Men's Safe House opened a year and a bit ago, and we've had 40 men through there. Currently in our resettlement service, we have 40 people um, that are being helped across the Southwest. And for the last 10 months, both women's and men's safe houses have been full. What we are seeing, we have seen a massive change in our client group. We used to worry about people being compliant. So because their freedom had been restricted, they'd say, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, okay, yeah. If you think I need to go to the doctor, I will do that. If you think I need to do this, yep. And we had to really train staff to make sure that they were challenging compliance. We have gone from the complete and utter other extreme. We are now dealing with complex mental health needs. We are dealing with drug and alcohol issues. We are dealing with suicidal clients. This is not something that is kind of and it, like, our staff team at the front line are absolutely fantastic. So again, if this is something you think, I would love to work in this sector, get trained. Get yourself kind of knowing what it is you want to do and where you kind of fit into that. It is a really, really complex beast. Um, yes, please do. Yeah, um, Sorry, the I'm sun's in a really weird... Kind of yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, Um, government policy is very clear that they will not offer identified victims of trafficking any automatic leave to remain because they consider that that would be an immigration loophole. Um, this makes it really, really problematic, especially for the situation you are describing. We find that traffickers tend to pick on 17, 18 and 19 year olds because they in effect slip between the systems. They are still children, but children's care are really struggling in times of austerity and with lacking resources to do the right thing or to be able to do the right thing. And adult care are saying, well, they're not really adults yet. So it's a really, it's a ploy that traffickers are using. Um, the issue with that specific gentleman, I'm guessing, is that he had asylum up until the age of 18. And then when you go from an asylum seeker as a child to an adult, that gets negated. Yeah. So again, I mean, the stuff, that, uh, the stuff that we would work on with someone like that is we would give their case to a lawyer and the lawyer would then find various experts that would challenge the fact that if he is returning, et cetera, et cetera. But um, what you're describing is a fundamental flaw in the system. I think there, again, depending on your uh, militancy and love of politics, writing letters to MPs that say, actually, do we see how ridiculous this is that an 18-year-old, because he was 18 yesterday and now is 19, is no longer, like none of his experience have changed and 24 hours difference isn't actually enough to make anything change. So, And the problem is that you will face, there will be cynicism from border guards who have heard that story time and time and time again. And they will say that there is a percentage of those people who aren't telling the truth. And actually, I've, I've heard it. Vietnam's a big country. He can relocate somewhere else. Like, literally, those are, so again, what we're facing and battling with is times of austerity, stretch resources, stretch measures. And actually, even though the government wants to do something about it, policies that tie their hands in ridiculous ways. So, under the European Convention that we have signed up to, note, we don't know what happens when we leave Europe, um, we, are in, we have to give 
victims of trafficking 30 days reflection and recovery. So all the UK is entitled to, all they have to do is give someone 30 days support. They have upped that to 45 days support. So they then, so some of the beds that we have, they would pay us to have people for those 45 days. So that is all legally that they're required to do. And in those 45 days, they have, um, individuals have to have access to healthcare, legal care, um, compensation, financial support, and education. So that is the European Convention's entitlements. So we surpass it, but anyone would probably argue that 45 days isn't long enough. They are actually extending that to 90 days um, as of the beginning of April, which is fantastic. Um, I would still argue it doesn't really solve the issue because actually it doesn't matter whether you've been supported for one day, 45 days, 90 days, two years. If the systems aren't in place to continue your support and move you through the system, actually it's immaterial. Um, also, I suppose our average stay is 103 days at the moment, and we've had people in the service in resettlement for three and a half years still waiting for their, NR, for their decision about whether they're trafficked or not. So it is a really, really complex system. Hey. Yes. Yep, so um, their trafficking claim, really good point, their trafficking claim and their asylum claim can sit parallel. They are meant to be separate. However, we have seen trafficking claims used to um, cred uh, make an asylum claim credible or to challenge its credibility. Asylum is a far longer process um, and it, it gets down to the stage of the lesser of two evils. If someone is leaving our safe house and would like resettlement but have got nowhere to live, their lawyer is usually going to advise them that you claim asylum because then you'll have a roof over your head. And then you get into the politics of, is asylum an appropriate place for really vulnerable people? So, but yeah, they're meant to run parallel, um, but you will have victim trafficking through in the asylum process, and you'll have people in the asylum process who are victims of trafficking, but not applying for that status. That is a great question. Yep. Great. Um, so um, we have um, internal and external supervision for all our staff members. So um, they, are, they meet with a clinical psychologist on a one-on-one -on -one basis, internal to the organization and externally. Um, we then also do um, reflective practice. So they meet as a staff group and they reflect on the situation in the properties or the situation of tricky clients. Um, and then they work out how they're all feeling about that and move forward there. In terms of training, we have qualified um, nurses, social workers, and then people who have spent years in working with on-street sex workers, drugs and alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. So the pool of people... Uh, yes, mental health services. Um, we, so what... We're providing, in essence, generic support workers that come from that background, and then we are trying to link these individuals in with the, sy the systems and services that are already in the community with the principle that, actually, if we do everything in Unseen, everyone's just going to go, you're doing a great job, on you go. And actually, when those individuals come to move on, they're not going to have a GP or a care pathway or all those things. So um, training for the helpline staff is currently, it's a six-week training program to enable them to understand what's going on, to kind of spot the indicators, in a, to support themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So it's something we take incredibly seriously. Um, and when we were involved with writing trafficking care standards with a, a group of other agencies, it was something that was really surprising to us how many agencies in this field weren't offering their staff support. 
these are guys that are at the front line 24-7, and it's incredibly important that we're making sure that they are supported and that they understand their own support needs and ask what, for what they need as well, and we give them room to do that. Um, no worries. Um, so we also do a lot of work with government. Um, I was with the Home Office all day yesterday. Um, great advising them on what we think they should be doing and them saying, well, we don't have the resource budget or that for that, so we like that, but how do we get it to meet this? So that's a challenge, but um, it's a welcomed one. Um, and then we work a lot with law enforcement as well in terms of trying to help them train and identify kind of where they find people. So, yes, please. Yes. Oh, great question. So stakeholders. So everything from um, police, um, government, local authorities, um, UK border agency, health practitioners, mental health teams, the clients themselves, kind of people who've been through the service. So stakeholders are, so this is a really complex issue that we can't tackle on our own. So actually it's about trying to inform and equip all of those different people. Also businesses, actually kind of what is your business doing? What's your supply chain? Are you looking at that? And making sure that all of the stakeholders understand modern slavery in the broadest sense of the word and then understand what their role is to play. Um, and we try and help them kind of see through, through that with them. So, practically, I was thinking, <laughs> thinking about what, what a church can do or what a community can do. Um, I think the big thing for me, <laughs> behavioral change, massive behavioral change in congregations. So we're talking long term here. This is not going to be something that by a Monday morning everyone's going to be like, yeah, I had a great service on Sunday and we're all sorted. But so I think behavioral change is the long term goal. Um, I think it's about challenging communities and about challenging churches to engage with the issue in a way that's appropriate for them. Back to that kind of small bite-sized chunk bit. Um, I'm always still amazed at how many people don't know about modern slavery. So again, just talk about it. Just go and tell people that you went to a conference and these are the talks you listened to and kind of this is what you thought about it and, and, and. I think... It is truly astounding that people don't know. Um, this is a bit of an aside, but on Sunday afternoons, um, we get together once a month with a group of crazy friends who've done crazy things, and we do a talk. Um, so we had a friend who did a, um, an Ironman, so he came and told us about training for that, and we had another friend who worked in a refugee camp, and she came and told us about that. Basically an excuse just to get together and drink tea and eat cake and hear about our amazing friends. And um, I did one on slavery, because everyone was like, oh, your job sounds cool. I was like, mm-hmm. Cool. Um, I don't really want to be talking about it on a Sunday afternoon. I will do it for you guys. Anyway, so um, they were absolutely flabbergasted that um, slavery was happening on their streets, potentially, that some of the industries so, uh, that I've mentioned, so you've also got, you've got your car washes, your nail bars, your hotel industry, your agricultural industry, your farming industry, like it can happen anywhere. Um, and again, it started making them think. So one comment was, better wash my own car. Now, that's a really simple thing, but up until that point, my friend, who is highly intelligent, hadn't thought about it. Now, I am not standing here saying every car wash is dodgy, but actually, are you willing to take that risk? So again, it's that kind of little bit of change that might make a difference. They might be hard choices. They might mean that you might have to give up some of your favorite fashion items, uh, some of your technology. You might have to change your food shop. You might even have to reduce the number of gin bottles and wine bottles that you purchase because vineyard, we, yeah, anyway, um, uh, <laughs> um, in order to purchase kind of more ethically sourced or organic or, or, or whatever your parameters are, you need to start somewhere. Okay, we are all, we've got time, energy, and money. Those are the three things we've got, and we've got to decide how we use them. And we've got to practically try and do that. Hello. 
Ooh, million dollar question. Okay, I will give you some generic indicators, but that doesn't mean that, that yeah, all car washes or all nail bars or all anything's are dodgy. I have to give that caveat. So um, for me, I would be, when I go into those environments, what I'm looking for is, um, I am looking for, does the person who takes the money, is that the person that's done my service? So actually, when you drive into a car wash, very rarely, in my understanding, are you handing over the money to the person who's washed your car. You're handing over the money to the guy that's at the front. Same in nail bars. Are you able to pay cash? Or, uh, sorry, are you able to pay a card? Because again, a cash-only business in today's society starts raising potential flags. How are the people looking? Are they able to talk to you freely? Are they able to speak English? Are they engaging with you? Are they giving you eye contact? What's their body language like? All of that could be for 101 other reasons. They had a really bad night's sleep, et cetera, et cetera. But it's about just trying to understand some of those things and looking for them. There are some great websites that you can um, look at that have got lists and lists and lists of indicators of what you could look for. Again, if you're interested, um, the National Crime Agency's website has a really good um, list. You can look at them. Um, but I think probably I would say gut feel. So if you're in your kind of work lives, frontline support services will come across people, um, the alarm bells will ring. And it's about kind of, I suppose, calling and trying to find out. And that's kind of what the helpline offers you in the sense of you could ring and say, I've seen this, this, and this, and it might be nothing, but I'm not happy with it. And actually, I'd rather people make that call and let kind of professionals then pass it on if it's correct to do so, than people go home going, oh, I'm really not sure, or people going in and doing their own investigations. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Yeah, great. Wow, that was not in my brief. Um, uh, no, no, it's mine. <laughs> I, I think, so um, I could give you a kind of passe answer about that's my challenge to you guys, et cetera, et cetera, is how do you work out how you do that and how do you work out how you do that safely? Um, I think in your specific example, we can definitely grab time afterwards because there are indicators specifically for the farming community and there is a pathway that I think one of the organizations in Ireland has created. So again, let's talk, because I can give you that resource. So again, it's about finding those resources. But it is the challenge. How do we change ourselves that then impact our friendship groups, our families, our communities, and then that kind of, kind of extrapolates out? Um, I think it's about changing stuff together. Hello, sorry. sorry well. Yes. Mm-hmm. There is, um, and again, it, it is we need to be careful because once we, um, as I think, as frontline agencies find sectors, that's where they then go because you almost get into a, a routine and a habit, and it's why the police are really good at um, finding drugs because they've done it for years and years and years, and actually 
so yes, there are, but again, the caveat of we find what we look for. Um, so the document I was mentioning earlier about the NCA will break down where people have been found, the type of exploitation and the industry in which that exploitation has occurred. So the other sectors that you might want to be aware of are the construction industry, uh, fisheries, um, agriculture, uh, what else, hospitality in its entirety, um, sex industry, to think of as any others that any is is the easy answer but that's not particularly helpful i appreciate but um if you go onto the nca website they'll be able to break it down for you and then again it will link to your local locality which is then helpful in terms of if we're doing anything about this what does it look like um you could again depending on your um letter writing skills you could write to your favorite said supplier of your technology or your favorite fashion um garment clothing people. As you can see, I don't really shop, so those words are just like, I'm like, ah. Um, the Modern Slavery Act has a duty in it that all companies that earn, um, have a profit over 36 million, an annual turnover, have to produce a modern slavery statement. So actually, if you want to know who the producers of your favorite items, what they're doing, go onto their website. It has to be on the front of their website, and it has to tell you what they're doing. Now, that statement might say, we're doing nothing. That statement might say, we're not sure what we're going to find, but we're going to do something. And that statement might say, yeah, we did something and we found it and this is now what we're doing. Now that, for us as consumers, is really, really powerful because all of a sudden we can choose, do we go with company A who said, I'm not doing anything? Do we go with company B who said, we're a bit nervous about this, but we're going to look for it? Or do I go with company C who said, none of us are perfect, but we are trying? So again, kind of start using the things that are available to you and asking the question. There will be companies out there who have not yet submitted their modern slavery statement. It is now a legal requirement, and they have to submit it every year, so every year you can see the progress they have made. So if this year they're telling you, yep, we're going to go to our factories in X country, and we're going to look for it, and we're going to make a plan, and next year they haven't done that, you again, as a consumer, have a choice. You can challenge, you can pick them up on it. Um, Something that we, that we did um, as a friendship group that was quite fun is we only shopped in second-hand shops for a year. We had some really interesting clothing, and we had to have lots of clothes swaps. Um, but again, that's something that you could do. Um, simple things in my head, like buying fair trade products um, for your homes, for your church, events. You can support local organizations, um, volunteering. I think there are loads and loads of agencies out there working with this issue. And I think um, some people will definitely be called to kind of set up their own thing. But actually, I would challenge people to go and look at what's out there. How can you add your skills and your values to what already exists? Um, we, so some of the ideas I had around that were skills directories. So actually, if you know that you've got a local organization that's working with any population group, it doesn't have to be victims of slavery at all, um, what skills do you have that they might be able to use? So um, on our kind of books at the moment for volunteers, we have a GP that kind of goes and delivers training to other GPs for us. Great, fantastic. GP talks to GP, perfect. We have a sexual health nurse that every so often pops into the safe houses and says, anyone too embarrassed to go to sexual health center? Would anyone like to chat to me about it? Um, we have got a lawyer that all of a sudden, if we've got an issue, um, we can just call and say, hey, can we have some guidance on this, please? So again, there will be people in churches that have professions and skills that can be used and utilized. So think about that, maybe. That's something that I think would be really, really good. I think you need to do work around learning the signs. Um, it would be great if churches and communities promoted the helpline. Call the helpline if you're worried. Um, I think it's about making informed choices. There's a great tool online called the Slavery Footprint. 
And if you are brave enough, you can go onto the slavery footprint and you can type in, um, it basically takes you through all of your life, your holiday habits, your sporting habits, what's in your cupboards that you eat, what's in your kind of um, medicine cabinet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It outlines it all. At the end of it, it gives you a total of how many slaves work for you. You then have the opportunity to say, actually, what can I cut out? What am I going to change? And then how the heck do I do that? Because actually, as Kate said at the beginning of her talk, she can't give us an agency that, I know, that she knows is great for all of these things. So I actually have to get off my butt and do it myself. Oh, no. So it is that, it is that change that if you guys are passionate about it, it takes, yeah, it takes you to step out and start making those small changes, I think. Um, there are three, I mean, obviously, I've spoken about Unseen. There is another agency called Manumit. Um, who makes, they employ survivors of slavery and they have a coffee roastery in Wales and they produce coffee. So they have gone from source to production, they know it's slave free and they're employing survivors. Absolutely fantastic, support them. There's Manumit, M-A-M, sorry, M-A-N-U-M-I-T. Um, there is another organization that's just started up that we're partnering with called Hope at Home and they are asking Christians and churches to offer host placements for survivors when they're ready. So actually when they've come out of safe housing, when they've been resettled in the community, they need somewhere to live. So there's an organization that is doing something that if you have a heart and a passion for it, partner with them, connect with them and like help kind of the bigger picture. So there are agencies out there that are doing some really awesome stuff that you guys could get involved with. Um, so I think we need to be working really hard to minimize inequality and maximize freedom. And the church has to be a place that does that, and it has to be a place that is then welcoming to everybody. So I think, um, given some practical things that you could consider, and then I thought some more maybe cerebral stuff, I think. Look at the diversity of your friendship groups and your congregations and your communities. Are we actually welcoming to all, or do we all just sit in the same room being exactly the same? Are we, are we truly minimizing the inequality? Or are we actually just all hanging out with people that are like us? How do we make church a hospitable and accessible structure for all? And that isn't necessarily your Sunday morning or your home group or whatever it is you do. And Vineyard is known for kind of hospitality. How do we make sure that we are having the biggest impact on the local need? And actually, in order to understand the local need, we need to then be kind of educated and resourced and really go out there and understand it. And I think it's just how far, how far are we willing to go? How far reaching is that? And is that kind of sense of injustice and inequality and the desire for freeing people ingrained in our very beings or not? Because if it is, it's going to be really, really hard. And it's going to be a daily, hourly kind of, okay, I'm making a different choice now. And it's an active thing. I would like to finish with um, a story. It's a poem that one of our survivors wrote. So I said to, um, I emailed, I'm lastminute.com, so I emailed everyone on Monday and said, hi guys, does anybody um, fancy, anyone want anything to say about freedom, as I said? And then I was like, any of the survivors want to say anything about freedom? Um, no pressure, but you know, so again, I have permission. Um, he wrote this yesterday for us, and I'm going to read it. You can guess what country he comes from afterwards, maybe. I read it to my husband last night. He was like, wow, he must be from here. And I was like, how did you know that? So um, I'm not going to do the accent, but I am going to try and read it as he's presented it. So this is his poem called Freedom. After what I have been through, 
Freedom is having the options and ability to choose and doing everything of my choice, not the demands and threats and fears of others. I don't have to worry about the person I love and that I'm supposed to be protecting. They are no longer in danger. This past few years of my life opened my eyes to what we call freedom. Before I came to this country, freedom to me meant eat when I want, what I want, sleep whenever I want, wherever I want, no time restrictions on wherever I go. Freedom to choose my friends and be with my family. Even in my words, I can choose. I never even gave it a thought. It was so obvious that I was free, that I took freedom for granted in would just be my way of life. Then, just it hit me like a brick what freedom really was then, when I was forced into a world where I had to be doing things by force, the invisible restrictions, the restriction of food and everyday calamity, sleepless nights scared to put my head down because I had to guard my son, cut off from friends and family, having to be forced to do things just to survive, then having my sanity stripped, then from sun up to sundown being forced into the worst jobs till it broke me. Then, when getting through the day was the only thing you can think about, no healthcare, no living provisions, it was just a way of life, no time to think for yourself, only that I had a life, my sons, to protect. Everyone been through that will understand that freedom is one of great, life's greatest commodities, one that everyone could be stand, should be standing up to fight for, because this life is not worth living. It's not worth living, cannot be worth living, unless one stops and takes the time to make sure our actions in thought and word and deed reflect this. To make such an impact that everyone around us can actually know what it is to be free. Now I look at life different. When I see my kids, smiles on their faces. When I could access to healthcare, I can eat what I want, when I want. When I sit in conversation and talk of any topic, I can go places I choose, even the greatest thing of being free, I can say that one simple word whenever I choose. I can say no. Being free to sum up is having the choice and the ability to say no. That's it. Come here, no. Eat this, no. Do this, no. Should I? No. Freedom is that power, the strength, and endurance to say no. When I say that word, I have it. Freedom. Um, I'm going to be here for a while. If people have questions that they don't want to ask in front of everybody else, I will hang out. I guess you guys have another session to get to. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for participating.